Okay, that was her walk-up music. You know how batters come to the batter's box have walk-up music? That was Tammy's walk-up music. Uh, Tammy? There we go. So those of you who were here when I was here, remember that I am technologically challenged when it comes to my microphones. Um, they either work for me or they do not. So most of you know me, but there may be some people who have come to the church since I was here or who are watching us who don't know. I am married to Joseph Jackson. We were high school sweethearts at Glencoe. We will have been married 30 years this year. We have two grown sons who are still members of your church here, Andrew and Ryan. Andrew married Bethany here in this sanctuary. Both of our boys' high school graduation ceremonies were here. Um, and I have been pastoring since 2006. I have been a supply pastor, a licensed local pastor, and now an ordained elder. I am a graduate of Asbury Theological Seminary. I have served a two-point charge, been an associate pastor, been a lead pastor, served ATEM, which is Extension Ministry, as at a nonprofit. I have been bivocational, pastoring a church as well as doing that. And I am now in my third year as the senior pastor at Anniston First United Methodist Church and a doctoral student at St. Paul School of Theology, one of our United Methodist seminaries. I am what we call a centrist which means I stand in the center. I agree with the conservatives on some issues, I partially agree on others, and I disagree on some. I agree with the progressives on some issues, I partially agree on others, and I disagree on some. We centrists have been called cowardly progressives, that we are simply too scared or too ashamed to admit that we're really progressives, wolves in sheep's clothing coming in to try to take you. But I believe that standing in the middle is faithful to our Methodist heritage. I believe it is a very Wesleyan thing to do. I am also what is called a compatibilist, which means everybody in my denomination does not have to agree with me for me to be in fellowship with them. And I also believe that that too is part of our heritage as a United Methodist. I was part of the organizing group of the Wesleyan Covenant Association here in North Alabama, and I withdrew from that, and I will say more about that as we go. I do have a lot to say. I'm gonna talk fast, I apologize for that, but I'm trying to respect your, your time. Uh, Dee had 10 reasons why he is leaving. I have 12, I believe, for why I'm staying. The first one is that I do believe you can make a biblical argument for LGBTQ inclusion in the church. There are a lot of resources who are gonna do that much better than I do. I'm gonna recommend a couple. One is God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines, and the other one is Holy Love by Dr. Stephen Harper. He was one of my professors at Asbury Seminary. 
The reason I think we can do that is because we can unpack what the words actually mean that are being used in Scripture. And very often we hear what is said that we're not supposed to judge. We hear that thrown around. But the reality is Scripture does say we're supposed to judge. A tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 12 and Luke 6. But what kind of fruit is that tree supposed to bear? Well, of course, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 1 John 4, 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. And that's how Jesus said that they would know that we are his disciples. Not by our holiness, not by our rule keeping, not by where we put our fence borders, but by how we love people. Grace is our how and love is our what. Love is our greatest commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. All of our neighbors. The ones we agree with and the ones that we don't, including the ones who are part of our denomination. In fact, the whole story of the Good Samaritan was told because someone wanted to put limits on who they had to love. So who exactly is my neighbor that I have to love? And God tells the story, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to basically say there are no limits. You don't get to put limits on God's love and you don't get to put limits on who you love in God's name. They're all our neighbors, all made in the image of God, all people that Jesus shed his blood for, just like us. As a Methodist, I believe in grace Provenient grace, sanctifying grace, and justifying grace. There, provenient grace is the grace that goes before us. Justifying grace is the grace that saves us. And sanctifying grace is what happens afterwards. But it's God's grace at work in each and every person's life that makes the difference. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that it is God's desire that everyone should come to know him. That none should perish. And how that happens is God's provenient grace draws them. Where does that grace draw them? supposed to draw them to the church. We are the agent of connection. We connect people with God. We are not the agent of conviction. That is the Holy Spirit's job, to bring conviction in their lives, to make them more like Christ. Sure, you can encounter God everywhere, but we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the place where they're supposed to find love, where they're supposed to find grace, where people are supposed to walk alongside them on the journey as they become more like Christ. My second reason is because I don't believe that human sexuality is an essential for justification or salvation. And I don't believe that we should separate or split over non-essentials. You may have heard the quote, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. Now that's been variously attributed to everybody from St. Augustine to John Wesley to people I've never even heard of. So whoever said it and whoever should get credit for it, it's a really succinct statement. We have to agree on the essentials, but is this an essential? And I don't think it is. Because what I see in scripture, because I too am a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ, and you don't have to be a full-on conservative to be one of those. What I see in scripture is that Jesus is essential. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ, intentionally chosen, initiated by God out of his great love for us, responded to by us through repentance and commitment and accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. That is justifying grace and that is essential. 
And that is what scripture says is essential. Whoever shall believe in their heart and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Christ is Lord shall be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, on that, I will build my church. If the things that follow after justification we call sanctification, and if you had to be so sanctified, any point on that journey, in order for your salvation or justification to stick, then that would become the point of justification. But that isn't the case. It is believing and committing to follow, and everything that happens afterwards is sanctifying grace. And because you and I disagree on what needs to be sanctified in my life or your life, to me, is not something we split over. Others say that the historic creeds are the things that we should agree on. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Now, I've been Methodist 30 years this year, and I count on one hand the number of times we've ever used the Nicene Creed in a worship service. But it has become the gold standard for many in the global Methodist church. But there is nothing in either of those creeds that addresses human sexuality. You can affirm each and every line of both of those creeds and still not agree on this issue. And you can agree on the issue of, of human sexuality and not affirm lines in that creed. My third reason is because every time the church, the big church, not just our church, but every time the church has opposed a move like this, we've turned out to be wrong. Seminary at Asbury made me a student of church history, a subject I didn't like so much in high school because there was way too many names and dates. But one thing I've learned with a little more life experience is if we don't learn from history, we will be doomed to repeat it because it circles around and comes back to bite you if you don't. We differ on many, many things in the Methodist church already. Some of us believe it's okay for you to have a drink of alcohol that the prohibition is being drunk. Others believe you should not touch alcohol. Some believe there's room for gambling, lotteries, bingo, raffles with your kids' little league, with your little peewee football team. Some think smoking is okay, that divorce is okay in some circumstances. Others allow for a commitment without legal marriage. Two older people, it's gonna hurt them financially to get married. They can be committed without being legally married. Some think marijuana should be decriminalized. Some think the death penalty is wrong. We're not splitting over any of those issues. We're splitting over this one issue of human sexuality. And we've been wrong on an awful lot of other occasions. All the way back to whether or not the earth revolves around the sun or the sun revolves around the earth. And they quoted scripture for it. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So that means that the earth is the center and the sun moves around us. We know empirically through science that that is not true. And because I believe that everything in the Bible is true, it means that that interpretation of that scripture is wrong, not the scripture. I have a high view of scripture, but I do believe in rightly dividing the word of truth so that we get it right and apply it right. And we've been wrong since. We were wrong on slavery. We were wrong on women voting. We were wrong on women preaching. We were wrong on civil rights. We were wrong on interracial marriage. Our own denomination split over the issue of slavery. When General Conference said that people should not own other people, that some people are not less than other people, we, and I say we, we here in the South, we didn't like that. 
because we liked slavery and we didn't know how we'd run our plantations without them. When General Conference ruled that bishops could not own slaves, members should not, but bishops could not, we actually split rather than comply with our very own polity. And it took more than 100 years for us to put back together Methodist Episcopal North and Methodist Episcopal South. It is why you have Gadsden First Methodist and Sweet Home United Methodist a few blocks from one another, and you will never put the two together because your history of racism haunts us still. And by the way, the reasons you can't control those out-of-control Methodists out in the Pacific Northwest has to do with slavery as well, slavery and integration. We didn't want them forcing black bishops and black pastors on us here in the South. We didn't want them to force their interpretation and values on us, so we created jurisdictions so that you would only have to work within your southeastern jurisdiction to ensure that that wasn't imposed on us by others. But that's why now we can't impose our values and interpretation on those who are out west. Again, it comes back to a legacy of hate. The fourth reason I'm staying is because I took membership vows and I take my vows seriously. When I joined the United Methodist Church at Springville, in Springville, Alabama, I promised to support this church and every local congregation of it with my prayers, my presence, my gifts, my service, and later we added our witness to the world. And if I cannot keep my vows, then it is my obligation to depart and go somewhere that I can make vows that I can keep. And I have an obligation not to just try to destroy the, the organization I'm leaving on my way out the door. What we have going on between the UMC and the GMC is the equivalent of a nasty divorce where one is throwing the other under the bus. And I don't think it is the UMC that is doing that. Number five, the reason I'm staying is because who we are is who we've always been. We've always been a connectional denomination. We don't believe in congregational leadership in the same way that some of the other denominations around us do. We've always had representative leadership from the local congregations where we don't call very many church conferences. There are very few reasons in the Book of Discipline for why we do that. This disaffiliation is one of them. We nominate people and affirm those who will lead on our behalf. That happens at the district level. It happens at the conference level. It happens at the general conference level. It's who we were created to be. We believe in corporate discernment. We believe that the Holy Spirit is in that process, that the Holy Spirit guides the leaders in the local church and those that we elect to go to jurisdictional and those we elect to general conference and that the Holy Spirit is present when we have an administrative board meeting and when we have an annual conference and when we have a general conference. And that has meant in the past that general conference has made some decisions I didn't like, but I believed in the process, so I stayed. Now some are saying that the den denomination left them. No, it didn't. It didn't. We were a denomination that corporately discerned when you got here, whether you were born into it or married into it. And how do I know that? Because that's the way we were founded from the very beginning. I was raised in another tradition. Some of you know which one that was. And that tradition gave me many wonderful things. But it was a place in which the doctrine, the polity, and the positions were fixed. You didn't question them. You learned them and you submitted to them. 
My pastor growing up once admitted to me that a position they held was not actually supported by scripture and that his journey through seminary had told him that's not actually what that says and means exactly. Well, I was horrified and I said, well then why don't we change it? And he went, well, the fear is that if we admit we're wrong about this, we might have to admit we're wrong about others and the whole thing unravels. I heard Dee say something very similar a few minutes ago. But that's not true. We can't be afraid to admit that we might be wrong about something. That's not compromising, it's not abandoning scripture, it's not leaving orthodox faith. It is in fact obedience to allow the sanctifying grace of God through the Holy Spirit to help us see. And when we discover that we are not lined up with where God is moving, we adjust ourselves. We don't try to restrain the Holy Spirit from being at work. Methodism has very historically been a both-and denomination and movement. We're not an either-or, we're a both-and. We believe in personal holiness and social holiness. We believe in holiness and grace. We believe in justice and mercy. We believe in personal spiritual disciplines and corporate spiritual disciplines. You can't just have one or the other, you need to be doing both. We've already always been in the middle. I don't know why they're now trying to say that being in the middle is an unfaithful place to be. There will always be some who want to focus on one or the other. Much about evangelical Christianity has reduced faith to an individual personal thing. It's all about being born again and making your own profession of faith. There are others who make it almost exclusively about social holiness or social justice, community transformation, and they don't get so involved in the personal holiness part. But neither of the ends has the market on this. We as Methodists stand in the middle and insist on both. We are the middle way. Yes, we must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. And then we go on to change the world because we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And sure, Jesus called people to come and follow him and didn't make them sign up for a creed or affirm a book of discipline or take a vow. But then he taught them what to believe and how to be a follower of Christ. It was on the job training. Learning as you go, not learning doesn't matter. All of this just simply gives me pause. But this might be yet another issue in which we are not right. Do I need to swap microphones? Do we? Okay. I definitely went out. I can, I can use a handheld. You might actually. You might actually get a little bit less animation if I'm trying to hold <clears throat> One of the other things that gives us a little bit of pause has to do with the trust clause and the way we interact with it as United Methodist. And the truth is, much as we don't often like to hear it, this is not your church. So we talk about 
this being our church and, a, and about having a trust clause. This one's working? All right, take this back. The trust clause goes back to the original Methodism. John Wesley would come through and plant an outpost for Methodist ministry. He would go off on the circuit riders. He would come back and discover they had been taken over by somebody else. It's now Calvinist or it's, a, it's charismatic or it's Baptist. And he said, when we plant an outpost for Methodist ministry, it will always remain Methodist. So the Methodists hold it in trust. So that means that the truth is, this has never been your church. It's not, it's God's church. And it is a Methodist church. Let me draw you an analogy. If you support a university and you give enough money that they build a, a building and they name it after you, if you then later have a falling out with that university and don't want to support them anymore, you don't get to go take your building back. You can stop supporting them. That's, that is how we are created. It's in the DNA. Now, I am personally a person who would support removing the trust clause. I think it is something that worked great for us in the past that may not work as well for 21st century Christianity. But you have to be a denomination that's willing to change your position on something to talk about changing that, to contextualize it and put it in what works. Reason number six for staying is that God has always met humanity where we are and drawn us toward his ideal. There are things in the Bible that are present but not endorsed. Do you want to talk about the buckets that we put them in? We have always put them in the buckets. Asbury Theological Seminary, where he and I both went to school, taught me how to put them in the buckets. It's the reason that women can wear makeup, cut our hair, and wear pants. It's the reason I can have lobster and shrimp for dinner last night. We have always put them in buckets. One of those things I see in scripture is polygamy. Most of us would agree that God does not endorse polygamy. If you thought that he did, you would be FLDS, not UMC. Yet, polygamy plays a key role in many of our stories in the Bible. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, all of those stories that center around the multiple wives they are having. And by the way, we still have United Methodists who do practice polygamy. They are some of our African brothers and sisters who do still practice that. The other one is slavery. It shows up in the Bible as a given, but we don't think it is something that God endorses. It's in both the Old Testament and the New. And sometimes we want to soften it and we want to make them servants or um, employees hired, but just lowly, but that's not. The word in both the Old and New Testament is for slave. These are not endorsed, but our faith has always lived out in a culture, in a context. And God meets us in the culture we find ourselves and draws us toward how can we be the most faithful possible in that context. My seventh reason, growing in grace and changing a position is not ignoring scripture or caving to culture. It is sanctifying grace. I simply do not want to be an obstacle between who God is drawing and what they may experience. If they cannot come to church, then they may never experience Christ. And I will not be that person. And if I get to heaven and he goes, you didn't enforce my rules, I'll go, I'm so sorry. But I am willing, I am willing to err on the side of extending too much grace than extending too little, because that is who we are as Methodists. And we don't react the same way 
Dee tailored what he said to you today based on what I said at his church last week. And here come the two examples that he didn't like about this. We don't face people with the same thing. He said he don't, knew of no pastor who had ever refused to let a member of the LGBTQ community come to church or had hit them with that. Our statements in the book of discipline are advertising before the person even comes to our door. And I do know of pastors that I can know by name and I won't call out because we're live streaming this, who have said, if you bring your lesbian daughter to Christmas Eve worship, I will stand in that door and prevent her coming in. I know him by name and I know him the church he said it at. But let me give you two issues. I'll take one that applies to me. I go to visit a new church and they're so excited to see me. We're so glad that you came. You're so welcome. We welcome everybody here. Thank you for worshiping with us today. But I need you to know right up front that we believe being fat's wrong. It's the sin of gluttony and the Bible does not endorse that. If the Bible condemns it, I need, you, I need you to say that because I love you, but you're gonna need to not be fat. And if fat is your natural tendency, if you struggle with it, if you just can't do something about the fat, at least keep it to yourself. We don't wanna know it or see it. Tell me that's not how we approach this issue many times. The other one is about someone who is rich, who has a lot of money. Oh, Richie Rich, we are so glad that you came to worship with us today. Everyone is welcome here and we're so glad you wanna join our church and be a part of us. God loves you so much and so do we, but you need to know that Jesus said it's really hard for a rich person to get into heaven. It's easier to shove a full grown camel through the eye of a needle than it's gonna to be to get you into heaven, but we're with you, we're willing to try. We don't say that to people. I'd be willing to bet that in our pews there are people who've had sex before they got married, who've had affairs outside of their marriage, who we don't kick them out with the same impunity that we do this one. And to me that says that has less to do with righteousness and holiness and more about our own discomfort and feelings about this particular issue. Wesley, John Wesley changed his mind on issues. That doesn't make us unfaithful, it didn't make him. And we have to be very careful when we quote his writings and his diaries from early in his ministry based on things that he said later in his ministry because he went back through and crossed out, wrote new things in the margins and changed things. He changed his ideas on women. There are some people right now that wish he hadn't because you wouldn't have me up here being mouthy right now. But he didn't think it was proper decorum and he wasn't completely persuaded by the scriptures, but some people out there in the Methodist frontier just weren't listening real good. And he went out there pretty riled up about the fact that they weren't listening. He liked to be listened to. And what he saw was women preaching, not just exhorting, but preaching sermons, biblically based, faithful sermons. And he saw people responding and being changed. And you know what John Wesley did? He said, I'm going where God's moving. That means I have to change myself. He went back to scripture. He looked at it, he examined it, and he found a way that he could be faithful and allow for there to be women. We do it in the Bible too. When we start bringing Gentiles into this thing, this Jewish Messiah's movement, they had a great conclave in, in Jerusalem to decide how Jewish do Gentiles have to become before they can be followers of Jesus. 
Do they have to convert to Judaism? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep all our dietary laws? Or can they just follow Jesus? And where they landed was, how Jewish do they have to become? Not very. They worked on some things that could be not completely offensive to the Jewish believers, but they didn't ask the Jewish believers to give up everything about their expression of faith, but yet it didn't become such a burden on others. There has to be a way forward on this issue for us to be of different minds on the issue, but united in our commitment to God and what God is doing through our denomination. And I want to be sure that we heterosexuals are humble about this because I'm an ally and not a member of the community. But more than 50% of our marriages fail. And the second most common reason for that is infidelity. 70% of our marriages, whether they end in divorce or not, will have infidelity. And the average American will have had 10 or more partners by the time they are 23 years old and get their bachelor's degree. If adhering to a sexuality standard means that every premarital sex act, extramarital affair, or divorce costs you your salvation, there's an awful lot of us in trouble. Reason number 10, I'm getting there. A diverse denomination can work. Not only has it worked, it can. The Disciples of Christ have been officially open and affirming as a denomination for a lot of years now. Each congregation, however, gets to decide how open and affirming they will be. And they don't keep throwing rocks at each other. It has not completely crippled their ministry. It has not devastated their congregations. It is not the end of the world. This is not Chicken Little. And the sky does not have to fall because we are not a one mind on this. Reason 11, our system is not too broken to be fixed. It is easy to say it's just broken and we need to get a new one, but we live in a very disposable society. But people... People are not commodities. They're not paper towels we change out when we're done with them. And our God is a God of resurrection. He's the great physician who can heal our wounds. Do we need some reforms? Absolutely, we do. But I believe if we'd seen as much effort put into reforming our denomination as we're seeing into splitting it and splintering it and leaving, we could have accomplished some of that work. Our good still outweighs our negatives. Reason number 12, there are book of discipline violations on both sides. This is one that is often raised. Well, they disregard the discipline. If they could get those liberals under control, I might could talk about staying. Understand that conservatives were ignoring the discipline for years before the progressives began to at least as openly as they are in the ways that offend some of you. They do so every week and they do it right here in our own annual conference. They are rebaptizing people. They are refusing to baptize infants. They are teaching doctrines that are contrary to the United Methodist doctrines, including rapture theology, charismatic gifts, the idea of once saved, always saved. You can hold those beliefs, but they are not part of Methodist theology and shouldn't be taught in United Methodist churches. There are ministers interfering with the work of another minister in their parish. They're communicating with former church members in ways that undermine their current pastor. They're conducting things like funerals without coordinating with the current pastor. They're secretly organizing with the WCA 
to encourage schism. They're refusing to comply with our educational requirements, requirements they knew when they signed up. So conservatives are violating the discipline as well. How long and at what point you get frustrated with the discipline not being equally applied before you begin to engage in some civil disobedience. And the progressives began to do it after 40 years of trying to make their case. Do I agree with them? I do not. I don't. I believe you play by the rules of the game. And if you choose to not apply by those rules, you also have to, apply, have to abide by the consequences. I believe those who have violated the book of discipline on both sides need to still feel strongly enough about their disobedience that they are willing to have their credentials stripped because of it and hope that our outrage at that forces us to look at making a change. So the second question was, the first one was, why am I staying? The second one was, what do I envision as the future? Um, my church, Aniston First United Methodist Church, we're not engaged in the discernment process. Um, and I don't anticipate that we're going to be. The reality, though, is that nobody knows what the GMC is going to look like, the UMC is going to look like post-split. But it is the UMC that has a history of work and ministry. And I believe that the whole is greater than the sum of our parts. We have such great work that we do through like discipleship ministries, through UMCOR, through volunteers in mission, through the general commissions on archives and history, the nomads, the RV um, mission and ministry. We have the Global Board of Ministries, the Committee on the Status and Role of Women. We have the Upper Room, the Walk to Emmaus, the Academy for Spiritual Formation, the United Methodist Publishing House and Westpath. Here in our own conference, we have Birmingham Southern College and Huntington College. We have Camp Sumatonga. We have the United Methodist Children's Homes. We have the superannuate homes that allow retired ministers to have a place to live. We support missionaries. We have Fairhaven Retirement Center, and we have United Counseling. You heard from Monica this morning. We do good work. And the reality is that the GMC has right now is promises. A transitional team with an awful lot of power and a book of discipline that is continually being revised, including even since they launched in May of this year. And by the way, every time they revise it, they make themselves look a little bit more like the UMC used to. Our former Bishop Will Willimon said, I'm surprised that they found so little about the United Methodist Church to reform when they wrote a different book of discipline. So here are my closing words. They're long, so get excited. My question becomes, how can a denomination that is started in anger over a single issue, that is spreading falsehoods about those who don't agree with them, and showing a lack of integrity in their motives and operations, be blessed of God. And how is that something that people in the United Methodist Church would want to go be a part of? I've only alluded to the WCA, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, and the GMC, the Global Methodist Church, up to this point. Know that there are a growing number of people who have been formerly involved with them who have chosen to go another way. Dee mentioned Robin Scott, our former district superintendent, Asbury Madison has withdrawn. They are withdrawing, but they're not going to the GMC. They are forming their own loosely organized network, much more like the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program than a Methodist church of people who, and it is all large churches. That network is not, they're not interested in the smaller or mid-sized churches. It's for the largers. Because they recognize the GMC is gonna be largely small membership churches 
with an aging population and they did not want to feel like they had to carry the weight of that, uh, that aging and large denomination. I was part of the organizing group here in the North Alabama Conference. If you were here when I was here, you know that I was much more conservative when I was here. I withdrew for three reasons. First of all, I heard hatefulness about those who were different. I did hear slurs about LGBTQ people. And I have names, I know who said them. And they are still active and involved with the GMC today and they are in ever rising positions of leadership in that organization. I began to see dishonesty. We would have meetings and they would tell us, go home and assure your folks we are not forming a new denomination. We're not even talking about that. That's not even on our radar screen. And it became increasingly clear that that was exactly what was happening. And I even said, it's dishonest of me to go home and say that. And I began to see other agendas. Friends, there are already denominations that exist that hold the same positions as those who are withdrawing from us. At any time, they've had the opportunity to resign as a minister in our denomination and go join one of those denominations. At any time, a church that could not abide by being United Methodist has had a way out that is not new. There is a church right here in Gadsden that withdrew about six or seven years ago. Because I remember one year as local pastor registrar, their pastor was being interviewed, and the next year when I said, I have a file for this one, we haven't interviewed. Oh yeah, their church withdrew. And they kept their building. But I have seen documents that go all the way back to 2006 where those who are currently in leadership with the GMC are exchanging emails and they are saying, the downside to an amicable separation from the UMC would be that the UMC will remain intact and able to do ministry for decades to come. They don't just want to leave. They want to kill us on the way out. There are agendas of ill will toward those of us who don't agree, issues of power and control, and money that are involved. It doesn't describe everyone, it doesn't. There are some good, sincere people in leadership in the GMC, but understand that they have a vested interest in trying to talk you into going. You are not getting unbiased information. You're not getting unbiased information from me. The United Methodist Church is where my windows opened up, where I discovered that great balance of liturgy and the Holy Spirit. It's where I discovered spiritual disciplines. It's where I have grown in my faith so very much. It is where I've been propelled into ministry. It is where my children have been baptized and raised and remain. I'm not unbiased. And I've had a number of negative run-ins with WCA people to the point that some of them, a lot of them, I've had to block on social media because I couldn't post something on my own social media account without getting jumped on with both feet about it. I'm not unbiased, but neither are they. I'm just asking you to take a breath and consider what they're doing. They're not presenting you information like a public library. They're more like a timeshare salesman recruiting you to what they want you to buy. And I want you to consider that carefully. They say that we're caving to culture, but let's be honest, in our area, being anti-LGBTQ is the culture. That's the water we're swimming in. It's much easier to be anti-inclusion than it is to be pro-inclusion. 
talked to me about what happened, about going to an annual conference where my former friends and colleagues would not speak to me or even look me in the eye because I no longer shared their position. When I had been sent screenshots of people calling me names and using some of those slurs about me and speculating on my own sexuality for why I'm arguing for this. That is easier. You want to get on an anti-LGBTQ tirade, you can pack a theater, an arena, or a church. But I don't believe that that's what Jesus asks us to do. I believe Jesus asks us to love, to include, to extend a hand of fellowship. Exclusion is easy. It is inclusion that is hard. It's messier. Yeah, it's messy. Jesus never said this wasn't going to be messy. He never said it's going to be easy either. Hate is easy. Love is hard. But I believe it's what Jesus calls us to do. A couple of comments, the notes that I made as Dee was speaking. He said that people are doing same-gender marriages and um, they're getting a nod and a wink and not getting charged. That is not true. A group here in North Alabama recently asked the bishop if she would uphold a moratorium on charges because we affirmed at annual conference our support for the protocol and a moratorium on charges was part of that negotiated protocol that we've never had an opportunity to try to enact. And she was very clear that she would not enact a moratorium and there would be charges filed and credentials removed if people did not comply. That's not happening here. Um, he mentioned a student um, that this church told him would not support that student. I remember that situation. I know the student and I know your pastor. It was Roger Thompson. It was when I was here. He was approached about supporting Stephen Benefield, who was a student at licensing school who wished to go to seminary, and Dee was trying to pay for it. What Roger told him was, we only have a scholarship to Candler. We don't have any other scholarships to any other seminaries. And Roger looked at me and said, if we were going to raise money for a scholarship we don't have, it would be to help you go to seminary, not for someone else we've not ever met. So it didn't have anything to do with the fact that he was at Asbury. It had to do with the fact that this church didn't have a funding source for that. I am vice chair of our Board of Ordain Ministry here in North Alabama, and conservatives get through the Board of Ordain Ministry just fine, if they know their theology, but they get through just fine. And the conservatives are, are not being treated equally. I think they are. For about 10 to 15 years now, they've been working very strategically to try to get conservative pastors placed in the pulpits at conservative churches. A former district superintendent of ours said to me, I believe if I can get them in the strategic pulpits, then when the split comes, the church will go with the pastor. And even at that time, I said, I'm not sure that that's true. Because I was thinking that many of our churches were being served by pastors who were significantly more progressive than they are, and they're not going to go. Church is not necessarily going where their pastor is going, unless they've had enough time to craft the narrative and apply persuasion. So I'm not saying that there aren't some ugly tactics on both sides. There have been, and I've been witness to it. Two wrongs doesn't make a right. And he mentioned um, it was time to go. I, I agree with him. It's one of the things we absolutely agree on. We cannot stay together. This is an unhealthy situation. I want them to go. 
I will help them pack. I will. Because this is not healthy. This is not God-honoring. It is not glorifying to the cause of Christ for us to be slandering and throwing rocks at each other this way. It does need to stop. All I want is for us to stop trying to kill the UMC as they leave. I want them to go. I want them to be able to keep their buildings, all their money, all their ministry. I just want them to pay what we already owe for our ministers who've already served us, who deserve to retire with security as we promised them. This really is the final word. There have been whole books written on the issue of LGBTQ stuff. You can read them, I recommended a couple of them to you. But I wanna stand here as a witness to say that I love Jesus and I want others to know Jesus and love Jesus. And I want others to come into the church and experience the grace and forgiveness and what it's like to walk through life with the Holy Spirit instead of alone. I love scripture, I read it every day, I commit it to memory, I pour over it and I dig deeply into it. I struggled through two Hebrew and two Greek classes in seminary and still need 19 resources to unpack it. But it is the standard of my life. So I read commentaries and I study the original languages and I try to make sure I'm rightly interpreting and correctly applying it. I pray and I worship and I strive to live in a way that pleases God. And I repent every evening for the ways I fail to do that. And I get out of bed the next day and I try to do better. I am a person of deep faith, of deep traditional orthodox faith, who also believes that there is a way to include my LGBTQ siblings in the family of God. And I believe that I can be in a denomination with those who don't yet believe that to be true. They can be considerably more conservative than me or more progressive than me. And we can hold hands and follow Jesus together. I think that's our heritage. I think that's what it means to be Methodist. I think it's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. I wanna offer you one website stayumc.com, a lot of resources. We're not unbiased, but we tried to do our best to present some from both sides. So we have things linked from Keith Boyette and the Global Methodist Church and the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I think we even have a couple things from IRD as well as things on the other side. Read, listen, pray. Just make a little room to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. And I hope we get to continue to do ministry together. Because I'm going to remain you I'm going to remain in the UMC. Okay, raise your hand if you have a question for Tammy. Pastors are being ordered and not even given information about disassociation. They're not even given, been given a choice. Okay. How do you address that? Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure that could be true. 
I'm sure it's true that some. I don't think that the UMC has any obligation to tell you how to leave us. It is on them to make the argument for why you should go there. Now, a pastor cannot stop a church from going into discernment if they wish to. If you feel like your pastor is refusing to lead the church, you contact the district superintendent. That's the polity we have. You talk to your SBRC chair, you talk to your administrative board chair, you go to your district superintendent. That's our, that's our current polity that exists here. Um, but I think if, a, if there's not a move in the church, I probably have a handful of people in my church who, who might want to entertain discernment, um, but they know they're in the minority among my church but I don't have any obligation to give them information on, on the GMC and why the GMC might want me to leave. What I have an obligation to do as a UMC clergy person is tell them about the UMC and all the good that we do and how they can be a faithful Christian as a member of the UMC. Churches don't even know they have an option. They're like kept in the dark. And <laughs> that doesn't set well with, you know, the way that I feel. I feel that if you have a, a right to know that you have an option, and then it would be your decision to disassociate or just pack up and go to another church that suits your needs better. But to be kept in the dark and not even informed that this is uh, a possibility. So you, you think there are UMC churches in North Alabama that don't know we have an impending split, that don't know we've been arguing about that this since 1975? have been... Uh, ordered not to discuss it okay i'm i'm gonna say you can talk to the bishop but i'm gonna tell you i think it's highly unlikely that anybody has been ordered not to talk about this that that doesn't fit with what our bishop says it doesn't fit with what any of the district superintendents i know have said i mean i can't say that no one has said it but it's not going to be someone who's in authority with the power to get a clergy person to not talk about it um, they don't, there's nobody that has that authority that is saying that. Um, our bishop has been very fair, very even-handed. The people on the far right and the far left both think that she has been biased because she's been so fair um, about it. She's not taken sides, and she's tried to be very kind to those who are leaving to make sure they had full participation until they went, publish things on the website, sending emails out. I mean, I, it, gets, it comes up every year at annual conference. I don't... Um, I find that very difficult to believe, although there have been some other difficult to believe things that have been true. I hope it isn't so, but I don't find it, on the other hand, hard to believe when um, certain people of power have disregarded the discipline without any consequences. Can you give me an example? Well, like the, the bishops and them making decisions on their own and uh, being told you can't marry this 
couple? Okay, I won't do that anymore. And yet he does, with no consequences, so. I feel like I already addressed who we can control and why we have that limitation on control in other areas. Um, our bishop has the same authority uh, as any other, other bishop. And there will be people. They're engaging in some civil disobedience over this. Like I said, they should bear the punishment for that. Anybody else have a question? How do you feel about transgender being in the pulpit and preaching? She asked how I felt about a transgender person being in the pulpit and preaching. Um, my position on that would not become the denominational position. And so in the post-split UMC, it is not the endorsing of those kinds of positions. It is our choice to stay and corporately discern. My personal opinion on that matters less than what the general conference of the UMC decides unless we choose the one church plant, which was what they hoped we were gonna choose the last time we had an in-person, that would have allowed this congregation to decide and my congregation to decide and others to decide. Um, I will say, tangentially connected to that, that if Dee doesn't want me to judge the conservatives by the fringe engines and those who have used hateful terms for LGBTQ people, then he also can't judge the progressives by the fringe ends. And I do not believe that because we make room for something in our family of God that we have to endorse the fringe edges. We don't endorse the fringe edges of heterosexual human sexuality. It's not just anything goes just because you're attracted to the opposite gender. It also doesn't have to be anything goes when it comes to finding ways for LGBTQ people to be faithful and have an expression. For me, where I have landed personally is committed monogamy. That sexual activity prior to or outside of your primary commitment is wrong. You choose one person, a life partner, and you are faithful to that. I believe that echoes the biblical um, model that it would two become one as a way of talking about the way Trinity is and the way we unify in there. I also do believe the medical science that says there are some legitimate transgender people in the LGBTQ community. It shows up in DNA tests and I'm, I'm a person who is okay with science even if it makes me uncomfortable because my opinion on that is not the denomination opinion. What I do as a clergy person is I abide by the UMC doctrine and polity. That's my obligation. I wouldn't be able to say what the church will eventually do because I don't know. I do believe, I'll say this, I do believe the two, the two sentences in the Book of Discipline will be removed. I do believe either at General Conference 2024 or 2028, we will eliminate the sentences that say homosexuality is incompatible with Christian Christianity and that we will remove the sentence that says marriage is between one man and one woman. I believe those two will be stricken either as part of our split negotiation or at the following general conference. And I believe anybody who says they don't think it will is being disingenuous as well. Because when a large number of conservatives leave, what you're going to have left is the centrists and the progressives, and so the progressive vote will carry more weight. Um, 
celibacy or faithfulness? In your pulpit or in any pulpit? In, your, in the pulpit at the church where you go or in any pulpit? You don't want any pulpit. That's a position. And I would say that I know people who, I know a minister actually who's on leave who doesn't believe that divorced pastors should be able to preach. He is divorced and he will, um, he thinks he can never remarry. There's no biblical um, allowance for that. He Do holds that position, but it doesn't mean we all have to. This is the question time, please. Uh, again, Tammy, thank you for coming. Uh, I'm Dr. Chip Griffith, a member of this church for a long time, but now a member of Rainbow City Methodist Church. When I joined the United Methodist Church in 1948, it was not the United Methodist Church. And so it has become that, and now as part of a disaffiliating team, then I feel like that I need to disaffiliate and you made the very angry sort of thing about throwing people under the bus. And yet, the United Methodist Church seems to be throwing people under the bus by all sorts of financial, particularly the small churches, uh, problems of, of raising those kinds of money in order to be disaffiliated. The thing that I experienced when I came into Rainbow City Methodist Church. The organist was LGBT, and he stayed there. My wife, who was dying, D performed during the COVID times, the services for my wife. He also for my best friends in a very, very compassionate way. And I just hate to see that these people I love, the people that I've been a part of, be angry at each other because you are going to perhaps leave the United Methodist Church or stay with the United Methodist Church. I, the question is, why are the United Methodist Church throwing the Global Methodist Church under the bus. Why can't we all live and be strong churches and not be empty churches like McCoy Methodist Church across from Birmingham Southern? Why can't we be? My anger comes in response to my treatment by WCA and GMC people, <clears throat> by the things that have been said about me, about others that I know, um, Dee stood here today and said that no traditionalist will remain in the UMC. And I made an argument for why am I, I am a traditionalist who will still be in the UMC. By the way, your pastor is one of the people I had to block on social media because every time I posted something, he attacked me. 
to the point that I received a screenshot from the, text, from the conversations happening in their private chat room that leave her alone, stop it, we're looking bad. Stop attacking her. So I, I do have some anger because we're being told we don't, we don't believe scripture, that we're not faithful. At what point have I heard that enough that some righteous indignation rises up in me? I wanted us to separate amicably. I have favored that for as long as I possibly could. But the more the falsehoods and the allegations happen, the more it upsets me. And I do respond very strongly. But I stood here today, I have shaken hands, I am kind, I am positive. With some of those very people, I shook hands last Sunday afternoon with someone who said one of the most hateful things about me. I still believe he's a brother in Christ. I believe one day he may regret the things that he said. Um, but it would, be, it would be disingenuous to characterize only the UMC throwing the GMC under the bus when it is the GMC that has largely been throwing the UMC under the bus. Could we uh, shift gears a second, if I may? Um, I think this is time for a moment of Sela, like we had this morning from uh, Harp, say her name for me. Monica Harbucker. She had a moment where we all stopped and we took a breath, we breathed in, and we breathed out. And we thought about exactly who we are and where we are and what we're doing. Thank you. This is a question and answer period. We've, we've had a lot of debates, so we want to shift to questions, if we could. Yes, sir. the Global Methodist Church would not be a part of Camp Simitonga, would not be a part of a lot of the outreach of, of what is the United Methodist Church. I'm the medical director of Camp Simitonga at this point. I plan to stay the medical director of that. I counsel with gluttonies, uh, if you want to call it that, you know, that I have a uh, weight loss clinic. And I'm telling you, and this is the question, is we, why aren't we friends? Why aren't we peaceful? Why are we even yelling at each other? Those are all questions. Well, here's the answer that I have already given. Because when the GMC attacks, when somebody's trying to kill you, you are allowed to engage in self-defense. And that is what I believe I am doing. What will be the process for ministers who find themselves in discord with their church? Their church votes to disaffiliate and they choose UMC or vice versa. Do you know how that will, what that process will look like? I do know that at annual conference this year, our bishop committed to the fact that if your church disaffiliates and you do not wish to, that we will find a place for you in North Alabama. Um, I suspect that will be a challenge financially for them to do, 
but that is part of our covenant, that is part of the vow that we take when we're ordained, is we promise to go where we're needed and they promise to need us somewhere. And she has committed that we will stand by that. I don't know how the opposite will be true for churches that stay and pastors who wish to go. I assume they will resign and take an appointment in their new denomination. Any other questions? Thank you for being here. This is this is messy. It's um, it's it's hard to be. You know, we say the church is like family. This is what we're talking about. I don't know about yours, but my family is me uh, is messy. So, yes, uh, you have a question. A question in the booth. Okay. Tammy, I was just hoping that you would uh, give me a little bit of more information about uh, baptism of babies and what the discipline says about that and how it would be proper for a pastor not to baptize a, an infant versus, um, you know, depending on who their parents were and so forth. Um, I will say that the Book of Discipline says that infants may be baptized there and that the people who bring that child are supposed, they're, they're actually the ones making the vow. They are promising to raise that child under the instruction of the church and the nurture and admonition of the Lord until such time as they come to embrace the faith for themselves. And the congregation in which that baby is baptized promises to do all in their power to support that parent and do the same thing. Um, every minister does have leeway in deciding whether or not someone presented for baptism should be baptized. Um, I know I had, I had this conversation with Ken Casey when I was here, and he, because in seminary we were having the conversation, and he said, I would always err on the side of inviting God to be present in that infant's life. There is something, it's not just a sweet little pouring water, we believe it is a sacrament. We have invited God to be active and at work in that child's life. And I don't know any parent who has ever stood beside a baptismal font that was without sin, and not gonna do something that's not gonna be absolutely God-honoring in bringing that child to baptism. That has never been the standard, in my opinion. And even at Asbury, my professor said, I would always baptize the child. It really didn't matter to me what, what was going on in the parent's life. But that remains the case, the same is true for marriage um, as well, and confirmation. I'm just glad they didn't omit me from the sanctuary because of obesity. You and me both, brother. <laughs> I was baptized at this altar 62 years ago last month. So I have a deeper kinship to this church. And I appreciate you coming today very much. And I appreciate D. Dowdy coming today. And it is difficult for all of us. I love everyone in this sanctuary. We're all different. I'm different. My brother's different. My sister-in-law were different, but I love them all. Now, my question is this. Did I understand you to say that you felt if that the conference would vote, it's a, it's a sexuality issue, we would be eliminating the paragraph that has to do with same-sex marriage, and that would happen probably in the next conference. So that means that the United Methodist Church would be endorsing same-sex marriages, and is that true or false? I'm just trying to let you... I, 
this, that is a personal opinion yeah. that I do believe in the next four to eight years that those two sentences will be stricken. I believe there is a difference between allowing for something and endorsing something. Um, I believe it will allow churches to contextualize in the same way that the Disciples of Christ denomination is doing, unless there's further legislation. But that remains unknown. Who's going to propose what? Will we pass it? Will we argue about it? Will we table it? Will we, you know, who, who knows? Who knows? Um, but I, I don't want to be heard as saying nothing's going to change. We're going to stay exactly like we are. We're just not going to have these folks who left because I don't think that's correct either. Tammy, as, as a pastor, do you have to marry a couple when they come to no. you? No. And does the church have to let people get married in it? No. So I already have couple. discretion over any marriage that I, that I do, and I'm, I don't. I don't do them all. I'd rather not do them. I'd rather not. I hate doing weddings. <laughs> They're headaches. There's a lot of drama with that. It's just hard. So I don't, I'll do it for people I love, but yeah. And a congregation gets to decide. They already get to decide about that. We have a lot of rules in place um, at my congregation for what we allow to happen in our sanctuary. We also have a lot of people who are afraid that they're suddenly gonna get appointed an LGBTQ pastor. But we have been fully ordaining women since 1956 and churches still get asked if they are willing to receive a female pastor. And we have been, we did away with central conferences, which was the segregation of black pastors from white pastors and everybody else. And we did away with that in the 1970s. And we still don't force cross-racial or cross-cultural appointments on churches. They have to be willing because it doesn't help our churches to force something that doesn't fit for their circumstance on it. It hurts the church, it hurts the minister, and it hurts the witness of the church and the community. I am not anticipating seeing that happen. And there's not this huge queue of LGBTQ people waiting to be ordained. I mean, they're, they're going somewhere else. They're going to other denominations other than us. So that would fall. Her name is Pentecost. Um, and, and actually it's a he because he's, he's dressed, he's preaching in drag, not cross-dressing. He's not transgender. Um, on there, he, do, he did it for Pentecost as a takeoff on that to reach some people and be different. I believe it's been too highly celebrated, but I also believe it has been blown out of proportion. Go, go watch the video and listen to it yourself. I had a number of people in my church come say, what in, what in the world? And we sat down and we took a look at it. And it turned out to not quite be the, the enormous issue that it was. But Pentecost is probably not next up to be appointed at Gadsden first or Rainbow City first. I've, I've got a question you'd like for me to ask. See if I got this right. Will pastors be forced to perform gay marriages even if they don't agree? Based on our Book of Discipline as it currently stands, we are already not forced to do any marriages and we don't have to say why. I have no expectation that that will change just because we remove those sentences. Um, however, what happens down the road, I, I'm not, I don't know that either. I just don't have any, I, I don't see that happening. I'm not forced to do anything now, except abide by UMC doctrines and policy. Yeah. 
yes, a question, but a point of interest. There's been a lot of discussion even here tonight about uh, critical discussion about the global Methodists not having their doctrine set in stone, yet here we are talking about all the proposed changes to the United Methodist doctrine. How do you reconcile that? I'm not talking about proposed changes. I'm just saying we have a process for amending our Book of Discipline that we've had since our creation in 1968. Um, there's a way to do that, so I can't say that nothing in there will ever change. I can say that the theological convictions in our Constitution cannot be changed. They are unmovable in the first part of that. And that's some of the things we're hearing about. This pastor or that one has a comment that they don't believe in this or, or that line of it. The fact that they represent a fringe end doesn't change the policy. But you have history here. All you have there is speculation. They don't yet completely, they've not had that organizing meeting to even determine who they are. Right now, every bit of the power is held by the transitional committee. They're the ones changing the book of discipline. It keeps shifting. At first, no moves were going to be initiated unless by the church or the pastor. If the church and the pastor were happy, they weren't gonna change anything. They've already had to back up on that because there might be some situations where we have to remove a pastor. Um, understand that their, their book of discipline allows them to come in and take over your church. If they hear you preaching something they don't like or the church is holding a position they don't like, they can remove your pastor, they can take over the way the state takes over um, local schools, they can, oust, they can shut you down and take your, your church and location. There's a lot of power. A lot of it echoes what we see in the Book of Discipline. Will they enforce it? I don't know because they don't yet fully exist. I, I don't share, we talked about this last week. I don't share your opinion of, of that. No question back there? So I had uh, read some of the bishops uh, frequently asked questions and one of the points that she made was that um, there was really no reason to be in a rush to leave by 2023, that actually what might take place in 2024, although it's unknown for sure, but it might actually be, be less costly mm -hmm. for churches because a lot of the part of the leaving that had to do with the pensions and funding that would be gone, would, be, would have been removed at that point. So what is your understanding of kind of that? Because we seem to be being pushed to, you've got to do this now kind of thing. So I would echo that. What we have now in place <clears throat> it was, is what it was passed at General Conference 2019, the special called one. It does expire for December 31st, 2023. We thought we would have long since have handled this before then. So when that was passed and that was the deadline put on it, it wasn't to force people to get out quickly. It was to give plenty of time, but not to leave this open forever. At some point, it's time to sign the divorce papers and everybody take their stuff and go to a new camp. We didn't know that General Conference would be, could be kept being put off until 2024. Um, and I do absolutely anticipate that there will be legislation approved that has to do with our split and allowing people to go their ways. What will happen is there will be a portion of time between December 31st, 2023 and general conference in August or May or whenever they do general in 2024. There will be that window where the only provision is the one that has been in our book of discipline for a long time. But I do believe, and the thing is that you have some of them, I've heard Vaughn Stafford, who's now president of the, Al of the North Alabama WCA, 
encourage pastors to stay until 2024 because if you stay till 2024, we promised the Global Methodist Church $25 million to go play somewhere else. Um, if they don't stay till 2024, you're, they don't get that if we don't approve that protocol. And the more that leave and go ahead and go to the GMC, the less people, less delegates there will be to vote for that and then get that $25 million. Um, but we do anticipate that the negotiated settlement at 2024 will be less costly for churches. We're not trying to be ugly. We're, we're really not. We're trying, you just have to pay what you owe. What we already owe, that we all owe, that we're already contributing for the ministers who've already served us and retired. There are bishops in other, in other conferences who have put additional requirements on there. If you have gotten a conference grant in the last five years, you have to pay that back. Um, or there are some places you're being asked to pay for a portion of the value of your building. It, it would be like buying your building off that university campus. They've been asked to do that, and it's been up to 50% of the value of your space. Our bishop has not done that because nobody here wants to be punitive. We would like for it to be an amicable split. We've got a question back here. As I look around the room, I notice a lot of commonalities, no offense, but specifically with age. Um, with this process, have we thought how it is affecting our youth and our young adults? Because at the end of the day, I know all of our churches want growth, specifically in that department. Once again, we are also of divided opinions on that. The conservatives feel like there are plenty of conservatives and we should be forming young people in those conservative values and so we'll grow our churches in that way. My experience as a United Methodist pastor has been that many of the 30 and under um, won't have conversations with us. They start from a place, they, their entire lives, they have accepted inclusion and they feel it's just hate, it's just hatefulness and they won't have anything to do with it. I know people that will not join my congregation, that will not participate in my congregation and people who have withdrawn their memberships, not at my church but others, because of this, until this is removed, they won't come. It becomes a frequent thing when we, when we are holding, like when we get involved with Noble Street Festival at Anniston and we're talking to people who come by the table and they will ask and they will opt for somewhere else. But let's be honest, um, the young adults are not flocking to our churches anyway. So many of our young people do not profess any faith and they're not interested. And it's not because they don't know they need something spiritually. And often it's not because they don't believe that there is a God. They just don't think the churches are the place to find that there are those. And that's our fault. All of our fault. It's the most frequent thing that gets hurled at me as a minister of the gospel. Is Christians are hateful. I think that's a mischaracterization, but based on a lot of the social media stuff and based on some of our conversations around this issue, they're basing it off their experience. Okay. okay. Uh, we'll take one more question. We'll try to wrap up here. Anybody got one more question before we go? All right. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you, okay. Deacon. And thank you, everybody. Um, can, can we pray as we go? Yes. Lord Jesus, um, 
We pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable in your sight because it's, it's your opinion that matters to us at the end of the day. Go with us as we go our separate ways and, and guide us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.